0: Get out on the edge, push the limits, stand out, and achieve. Every day is like this for the heroes of action sports. Get ready to hear their stories today on the Edge Radio Show. Now here's your host, professional ski patroller, author, and journalist, Kim Kircher.
1: At the age of 13, Brad Ludden's parents told him he could do anything he wanted with his life. He took it literally and did the thing he loved the most, whitewater kayaking. By 18, he was living his dream. He had signed on as Nike's first sponsored whitewater kayaker, was on the cover of Outside Magazine, traveling the globe in search of first descents on remote rivers, and filming with the largest production companies in the outdoor industry. Despite all of his success, however, something was missing. Brad wanted to give something back. Kayak had, kayaking had provided Brad with a bounty, and now he wanted to give the gift of outdoor adventures to others who needed it more. After watching his aunt battle with the disease, Brad decided to focus on young adults with cancer, and First Descents was born. Thirteen years later, First Descents, an organization that provides free outdoor adventure therapy to young adults with cancer, has helped over 2,000 participants live beyond their disease by providing them free multi-day adventure experiences. Brad, thanks for joining me on The Edge.
2: Of course. Thanks for having me.
1: So first, a little bit about you. Tell me about your kayaking career.
2: Uh, yeah, so uh, kind of a, as you read in that intro there, uh, I started paddling when I was nine years old. My parents, uh, kind of got myself and my sister into the sport. Uh, it was a bit of a love-hate relationship there in the beginning. Anyone who's tried whitewater kayaking can probably, uh, relate with the fact that it's pretty intimidating at first. Uh, and then something clicked right around the age of 11 and I fell in love with the sport and that's all I cared about and all I wanted to do. Uh, and so I sort of blindly followed that passion until I was 13 when my parents cut the leash and said, Matt, you can do whatever you want. And as you said there in the beginning, I, I uh, got a bit carried away, and all I did was kayaking because that's all I wanted to do. Uh, one thing led to another, became uh, a sponsored kayak athlete, so I was actually getting paid to do it, which was quite the novelty for me as a young kid. Uh, and uh, I used all the money I made from the sport to, to travel to places around the world and see the rivers I've always wanted to see and paddle with my heroes, and uh, that became my life. And, uh, you know, it wasn't too long into that journey that I realized the opportunity or, or perhaps the need to do more with, with that life than just uh, live it for myself. It seemed kind of like my cup had overflowed a bit and, and it was time to uh, find a way to share it with others. And as you mentioned, First sense was kind of born out of that re- realization.
1: I think what's amazing about about that bio, Brad, is that you know you talk about the need to give back, but you're talking about you know you were what 19, 20 when you had that epiphany.
2: Yeah, I was actually 18 when I kind of came to that realization, and it happened at the crossroads of uh, pursuing my kayak career or going to college, and uh, I chose kayaking, and, and that decision was you know came with a lot of. Uh, thought of, you know, what did that mean? What did that mean for me a- and my life? And what did happiness look like? Should I choose that path? And it really, the only way I could justify it and or make sense of it was to find a way to start giving it back.
1: Yeah, I just think that's a, that's a specifically, um, particularly amazing because I think of 18-year-olds as, th- that's our time in our life when we are sort of allowed to be the most selfish. <laughs> you know, and here you were really thinking about, other people already, you know, and I think that that's a real testament to you. thank you, yeah, so tell us more about um what it was like there kayaking. Were you in high school at the same time, or were you doing like a a study at home kind of program?
2: <laughs> was I in high school? Uh, that probably depends <laughs> on whether you ask me or my teachers, uh, as far as I was concerned, I was in high school they may they may disagree. Uh, I was technically yes, enrolled in high school. I split my time between three different schools, one being public high school, one being a, a kayak academy, and then one being an online school. And the reason I chose that route was that it allowed me the most flexibility to paddle as often as possible. And that 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 uh, online school, that uh, independent study school, was really the the kind of the key piece in that puzzle. Uh, in that it allowed me to graduate high school a year early. Uh, so I, I got all of my required credits done in three years. Got my diploma from an online school. Showed it to my parents and literally left the same day uh, for an around-the-world trip to go paddle. And uh, nice. so it was—I it, wouldn't say it was your typical high school career, but it certainly got the job done.
1: Tell us about uh, some of the places you got to visit during those those years and the rivers you kayaked.
2: No man, I was I was extremely lucky. Uh, I was just fascinated by the world and the fact that there's water throughout it, and water is really kind of the lifeblood, you know, it's the magnet for life, and and life kind of grows, all life grows around water. (laughs) And so I just wanted to go explore that. You know, my kayak was the perfect vehicle uh, to to experience it. And so I started, uh, my first trip out out of the U.S. was to South America when I was 12, and that was quite eye-opening. And then I went over to Europe, and that was amazing. Uh, But then I really wanted to start getting, you know, using these rivers as access points into really remote areas and, and doing these first descents. And so I started going into uh, spending quite a bit of time in Southeast Asia and Indonesia, uh, paddling on the Mekong quite a bit uh, there on the Cambodian border, uh, doing some really cool stuff in Sumatra. Uh, that was when I was kind of 17, 18. Uh, and then I, I found Africa when I was 18. And that was that I just fell in love with the continent and every, everything about it, um, North, Central, and South Africa, Madagascar, just all of it. Uh, And so I spent quite a bit of time really exploring the rivers there. I loved the whitewater. I loved, well, loved and hated the wildlife, you know, on, in and around the whitewater. And the culture just fascinated me. And so, uh, kind of the focus of my career really became Africa after that.
1: Tell me about a time when you uh, you got you know you had a scary river experience.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, there's good scary and there's bad scary. Uh, I had a lot of good, scary experiences, and I tried to limit the number of bad, scary. I um, had a couple of, of really bad situations, uh, you know, it, bad in the sense that they really um, were very sobering and scary, but probably good in the sense that they were sobering and scary. They opened my eyes to to kind of the, the reality of, of kayaking at that level and the need to be um, safe. Uh, but I remember one time in particular on the White Nile, I uh, I was kind of flippant and probably a bit too arrogant. I was in my mid-twenties and kind of the top of my game, and I uh, ended up in a really bad part of the river in a hydraulic that was massive, uh, unknowingly. Uh, and I wasn't paying any attention, which is just stupid on that river, especially in the particular rapid I was in, and um, <laughs> I, got, I got a beating that I probably deserved. Uh, to the point, though, where, where I actually started kind of losing consciousness uh, due, to, due to lack of oxygen uh, and taking on some water and... Uh, it just became a really unpleasant physical uh, and emotional experience and um, kind of was a turning point for me in my career. It opened my eyes enough to say, wow, you know, th- this could happen to me. Uh, and so in that sense, I think it was really good because it I probably made decisions from that place from then on. And, and you know, who's to say but that may have saved my life. So.
1: Well, and, and I know what you're talking about because I'm a kayaker, but maybe people who um, who haven't been, you know, a drift in the, in the, in a, in a hydraulic and, and been may tagged. Maybe you could just explain a little bit what you mean by, um, by, by that, you know, you were caught in this hydraulic and you were, uh, did you get taken out of your kayak or, you know, were you swimming? uh,
2: You know, on on a river of that volume, the the White Nile is a really large volume river and it was in the middle of a rapid. Uh, And so when I say volume, there's just tons of water flowing through this and, and that, That water creates these seams that pull you under. And and actually, your kayak can be your best friend because of the buoyancy that it offers you. And as soon as you leave your kayak, A, you're swimming with some pretty interesting animals, and B, um, you you lose a lot of buoyancy. And so um, it came to the point where I dropped into this hydraulic, you know, we call them holes, and they're just recirculating whitewater. So you drop into it, uh, you know, moving downstream, you hit these things, and you start recirculating with the whitewater. You stay in the same place in the river while it flows under you, and uh, it—you it, know—in a, in a hole that size, you get—you get worked so badly that you're just—you know—you're just doing these revolutions, at these crazy speeds, flipping over, upright, over upright, and uh, and just all ways. And you can't—you know—it's probably like being caught in an avalanche. You sort of lose your senses. You—you can't figure out which way's up or down. You lose all control. Uh, and you're, you know, at that point, you're just, you're completely powerless. Um, there's nothing you can do, you know, in a hole, in a, a hole that size to really, um, help yourself. And so I found myself in that situation and kind of got to the point where I just let go and accepted it, uh, which is, which is a really unpleasant feeling, um, to just not care anymore because you feel like you can't do anything. And, and that's about the time I came out of it, which, you know, I came out because the river let me out, not because I did anything to help myself get out of that hole and, uh, had just enough energy to roll up and float, you know, manage to kind of navigate the rest of the rapid somewhat safely, and then spent the next two days um, just really physically and emotionally kind of damaged. Uh, it was just an awful feeling, and um, but it, as I said earlier, I think it was a really good awakening for me. You know, I, I went in in the matter of a minute. I went from being invincible to being very aware of my own mortality and and how um, much of a risk I was taking kayaking some of these rivers.
1: And are you still running rivers at that level?
2: uh no 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 no, no, it's you know to get to that level, you have to paddle almost every day uh you know you have to just hone your yourself so much you have to be just fine tuned and as soon as you kind of fall off of that edge at all uh you a you have to want it back really badly, and b you have to get it back and I just didn't really want either i um, I felt like I left everything on the field so to speak and I, I lived that life fully and did everything I ever wanted to do with it. Uh and and I felt really good about moving on from it, which which is kind of a blessing. I, I think a lot of athletes struggle with that transition. Uh and it you know, it wasn't easy but it certainly felt right to me.
1: And, and do you think that kayakers who are, who are at that level will all eventually have a close call like that? I mean, or are there some that just might go on continuing to think they're invincible?
2: You know, I certainly don't know of a single kayaker at that level who hasn't either had a close call or, or at least come to realize uh, kind of the gravity of that situation, you know, kayaking at that level and how, uh, you know, how much is on the line. I think the younger guys, myself included, when I was a lot younger, you know, like with anything in life, you're pretty invincible, and you, or so you think, um, but, but after you've been around the block a few times, you've either had things happen to you or had things happen to your friends, which can be even worse, uh, you, you just, you can't help but realize it. I mean, you're, you're blind if you don't see it at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and would you say that the community of kayakers is a pretty tight community throughout the world?
2: Absolutely, um, kayaking, I think uh, is really a family uh, you know there 's this mutual respect for all kayakers, and there 's sort of this humility amongst the family that you know the river is such a powerful force that you have to be humble when you 're on it uh, and so that humility carries through in a lot of parts of our lives and I think it just creates this really easy community to be a part of and as I said, the mutual respect is is always present and I think uh, just because of those two things just uh, seem to all get along really well. There's no attitude because there's no place for it on or off the river, um, and so it's just like this really welcoming, warming, tight community.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, probably a big part of it, isn't it? You know, the whole community and feeling like you're doing something that uh, that 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 has that ability to bring people together.
2: Oh, absolutely! It's kind of like a badge you've earned through what you've done.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, you know,
2: and it, and it's sort of because of that we all come together amazingly uh in a close way i'd say to this day no no question my best friends are still kayakers Mm -hmm. uh, just because of it
1: have you always been attracted to you know kind of high-risk sports and activities
2: yeah yeah (laughs) my poor mom um (laughs) i was i was never the calm kid in any capacity uh you know i love skiing um, I love putting myself in, in dangerous situations and jumping off of things, and you know, whatever it is. I kind of like doing it to the point of probably, you know, a little too extreme. Not using that word in a cliche way. I just take it, take it a little overboard usually. Uh, and I guess maybe in some ways I'm just your typical boy. Uh, but, yeah, I've always found myself drawn to that type of sort of high-risk, high-adventure scenario
1: and is that because you like the risk per se or did you like the the triumph you know the ability to triumph over the risk or was it just the thrill
2: yeah you know i think it's a combination of things i think it's, it, the risk is just exciting you know it wakes you up it makes you feel alive it's sort of that cold water splash in the face of life um but then it you know it really became for me about the reward and that's where i started finding myself uh you know kind of being addicted so to speak to that risk was the feeling of overcoming it, and, and once you 've done so safely, and obviously unfortunately, the higher the risk, the greater the reward and so uh, that risk just kept getting elevated time and again and 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 sur- sort of for me anyway, in search of that reward and, and that feeling of what it 's like to be present within a risk you know when you 're doing something of high risk, you have to be completely present to get through it safely, and then that feeling at the end of it when when you realize you 've overcome something great and and you know those two. Those two emotions are pretty ad- addictive.
1: So, so take us to, let's say, you're about to, um, to to kayak off a waterfall, you know, and you're you're you know in a remote spot, and this is your objective today is you're going to kayak over a waterfall. What are you feeling? What's what's going through you while you're um, up there?
2: It's an interesting sort of experience, a range of emotions, I guess. Um, obviously the. <laughs> uh kind of the, the adrenaline building as you come toward the drop before you even scout it, you know, just knowing that it's downstream, that you're floating toward this thing and that you might run it, uh, is a pretty uncomfortable but awesome feeling. Uh, getting out and seeing the rapid, you know, you go into more of, a, or at least I should speak for myself, I go into more of an analytical mode at that point, just really assessing it and, and looking at it somewhat objectively and, saying, you know, what is this thing and and how do I see myself in it? and. And trusting your gut, you know, if you know if you know you've got it, you've got it. And listening to that and trusting it, and then getting in your boat above it, and that's the worst feeling in the world: is sitting in your kayak above a horizon line, and, and knowing that you've committed to doing this thing is just such an overwhelmingly scary feeling. Uh, and then it, it's an interesting process um, because you you peel out and you cross this imaginary point of no return. When you can't eddy back out, you can't get out of the river, and you're completely committed. Yet you're not in the rapid. And so those committing to and entering the rapid are really euphoric because you're you're you have to transition your mindset from and your feelings from being nervous uh, and anticipated to being present and focused. Because you you know at that point there's no turning back. So you can't think about what could happen. You have to think about what is happening in that that, you know, sense of presence carries you through the rapid, and it, it's kind of like this matrix moment where things slow down, and, and and the world becomes clear, you know, your universe literally kind of narrows down to the, the very present moment, which is a fleeting and amazing thing, and as you work your way through the rapid, you know, you're in that space, and you can't hear anything else or see anything else, and you're not aware of anything else, and if all goes well, you come to the universe opens back up and and things rush back in. And, oh, my gosh, that's an amazing feeling, Uh, you know, to to look back up at the rapid you've just come through and and to know that you did that. And just the feeling of accomplishment associated with that is, as I've said, it's probably too addictive.
1: And life-altering.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's transformational. You'll never feel more alive than that.
1: Absolutely. Let's take a short break. Right after this, we'll find out more from Brad about First Descents.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Crystal Mountain Resort is Washington State's largest and premier ski area. With 10 lifts and over 50 named trails, you can spend days exploring the mountain. From wide-open bowls and steep chutes for the more adventurous to family-friendly cruisers, you're sure to find something for everyone. The new eight-passenger gondola takes you 2,500 vertical feet to the best view of Mount Rainier and the Summit House Restaurant, where the food rivals the scenery. Convenient slopeside accommodations make Crystal Mountain Resort the perfect skier's getaway. Open for skiing until June. Learn more at crystalmountainresort.com.
3: Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter. Formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you. Every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. Hit, 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 hit. The opening kickoff is a beauty. It's a fly ball, deep right field. Back goes O'Neill. He's a at the, shot. Got it for 2.8. And
4: the left. I don't care where they put him. This one is out of here. From high school to the pros, we, we cover, everything. cover everything. Let your voice be heard. Voice America Sports.
0: You're listening to The Edge with Kim Kircher. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9144. That's 1-888-346-9144. Or send an email to Kimberlykircher at gmail.com. Now, back to the Edge.
1: Welcome back. I'm Kim Kircher, and I'm talking to kayaker Brad Ludden. So, Brad, let's talk about First Descents, the organization. Um, you started it when you were 18 you said. Uh-huh.
2: Yep. And, yeah, I had an um, idea for it when I was 18, and, and it took a couple of years to get that thing to fly.
1: <laughs> okay. And when, you're, when you first got it going, how many participants uh, joined you that first season?
2: Yeah, so the 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 very first program was in 2001, August of 2001, and we had 15 young adults with cancer join us from around the country free of charge for one week to learn to kayak.
1: And where did that take place?
2: That was actually in Vail, Colorado.
1: Okay. And so now uh, you're doing more than just kayaking. You're offering climbing, surfing.
2: Yep, yep. We've expanded our offerings. What we realized actually around about 2008 was that um, we had a lot of participants either due to complications with their cancer or just uh, their fear of water or whatever it was that didn't want to kayak but still wanted an adventure experience and and that demand really grew and we realized that we could recreate that same transformative experience that we offered through kayaking through other mediums and so we first started with climbing and had a phenomenal uh, outcome and then added surfing in 2010.
1: And so, tell me about the course let 's start with just the kayaking part uh it's Is it mostly um, a week long, and how do people how do people learn to kayak in a week uh,
2: Yes, yeah, so our programs are primarily week long courses We actually also offer weekend courses, which are more uh, inflatable kayaks and things of that nature um, but the the kayaking itself um, we 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 tell people that we 're not a kayak school we 're a kayak experience and so uh, we keep extremely high uh, instructor to student ratios. So we, uh, the most we would ever use is one instructor for four students, but uh, generally it's more like one to two. Uh, we've had one on one or even two on one instructor to student, depending on uh, their needs. Uh, and so that allows us to kind of accelerate the program. Uh, we keep an emphasis on safety, making sure that they know the basics and that sort of thing. The goal really is to give them that experience of a first descent, uh, not necessarily teach them uh, how to roll per se. Uh, And so the the week um, allows them to progress, learn the skills, and apply the skills to ultimately overcome on the last day class two or three section of water. Uh, But again, we're not concerned if they have perfect stroke technique or or know how to roll. We're really trying to get them on the water and get them overcoming those challenges.
1: And what do you think is the value for your participants? What are they getting out of this week?
2: Oh, gosh. (laughs) much time we
1: have.
2: So we work with young adults with cancer, right? So we work with 18 to 39-year-olds primarily with limited offerings to 40 to 49-year-olds. And the reason we chose that demographic is because they're really underserved. they are about 72,000 diagnosed in the U.S. each year. And if you compare that to pediatric cancer, for example, I think there are about 10 to 12,000 peds diagnosed each year. So it's a relatively large population of cancer that gets very little attention. Um, You compound that with the fact that being a young adult is arguably the hardest time in your life, and then cancer uh, sort of infinitely uh, complicates a lot of the challenges you're facing. And those challenges are, are things that we can probably all relate to on some level. Things like finishing college, um, you know, dating, marriage, starting a new family, a job, debt. Uh, you know, all of those things associated with being a young adult. And what what we found through various research is that young adults, when they're diagnosed, uh, often experience somewhat unique psychosocial trauma, and so uh, really things that are uh, associated you know with uh, for example uh, self confidence self esteem feelings of isolation alienation uh, uh, depression anxiety uh, body image all of these things we see affected negatively by a diagnosis for a young adult uh, pretty much across the board and uh, so, what our programs aim to do is restore a lot of that damage, um, and, and that 's more of a you know so we we 've done some quantitative research studies and found that uh, these these experiences actually improve uh, quality of life in those key areas you know improve self confidence and self esteem body image decrease depression anxiety general psychological distress so so that 's a more scientific answer right uh, I think more <laughs> Uh, just more realistically, what we do is, is take these people into a legitimate challenge in an authentic environment, organic environment, a beautiful place surrounded by great people who, who understand it, who get it, who speak their language, and put them through uh, a challenge that they overcome on their own. And that act creates a really strong community where one didn't exist. Uh, it restores people's confidence in themselves and their bodies, which cancer often takes. Uh, and... Uh, I think it, it kind of gets them back kind of jump starts them back into life even if they survive their cancer it gets them back to living that life um, and, and the, you know knowing that if you if you kind of top out on a, a multi pitch climb or, or tag down a class three rabbit or stand up on a surfboard on the face of a wave, then no one gave that to you right that, that's an act of kind of a defined act that you did your on your own and the river and the rock and the waves don 't care that you had cancer, so no one's treating you unfairly or or baiting you because of it, and I think just that act alone restores so much of what cancer took from these guys. So, bit of a long-winded answer, but I think I think there's quite a bit to it.
1: I, I really like what you say about overcoming that obstacle on your own. You know, rather than taking cancer patients and, you know, taking them, say, bungee jumping, where really it's just jumping off the, the the platform and the bungee does all the work. It's doing something that that requires a skill. And I think that that's an important distinction.
2: Yeah, yeah. It has to be self-realized. Uh, it's, it's interesting the stigmas associated with cancer within our society. Um, people immediately assume you're going to die. They immediately assume you're fragile, um, and they immediately start to baby you for those two reasons. Uh, and oftentimes what they need isn't that. They need someone to kind of say, hey, you, you are alive. You are capable. You can do these things. And putting them in a kayak or, or on the face of a rock or, again, on a surfboard kind of enforces that. It reminds them of that. And, and having them realize that on their own without the help of anyone else is a really important step in their recovery.
1: Absolutely, and and so tell me a story. I'm sure your your participants have talked about what they've gotten out of the experience. Can you think of a particular uh, kayaker who came out and said, "Wow, this changed my life"?
2: Oh man, <laughs> uh, you know, in the thousands of participants who have attended the program, I, we we the, the, the greatest reward of of this job for all of us is just reading the testimonials that come back. And we get, you know, a few a day that we forward around our office, and that's really the fuel that keeps this fire burning. Um, it's hard to pick just one. I have hundreds of, uh, of really amazing stories about great friends who have taught me a lot about life. Um, if I had to pick one, there is one that stands out quite a bit. Uh, in 2008, we had this young man who was 19 at the time. His name was Nick. He was uh, based in Utah, diagnosed with a, a pretty nasty cancer uh, when he was 18, and um, kind of gave up on life a bit before that really active kid, active in his community, active as an athlete, uh, loved to ski, be outside, bike, et cetera, and all of that went away for him when he was diagnosed. And a year later, his family kind of encouraged him to try a 1st ascent program, and so he reluctantly attended it. and um, You know, I, I really grew close to him at that program. We just kind of had that sort of uh, maybe kindred spirit, so to speak, and he went home uh and his family said it was just a hundred and eighty degree turnaround and, and he not only bought and started kayaking, bought a kayak and started paddling on his own um and actually became pretty proficient at it, uh class four paddler. Uh but he also started a charity to raise money for first defense and for uh cure search, uh which is looking for um a cure for young or for kids with cancer. And um he unfortunately passed away uh about two years ago. Um, but the cool thing is, is that his legacy really lives on. He actually kind of climbed the ranks here at First Descent uh, and became one of our lead staff, our instructors, which was a really cool sort of, um, I guess, uh, it was cool to see someone complete that circle. Um, his charity has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, and kind of the most profound thing that happened between us, and this is, this is not so uncommon with people with cancer, is that... His doctors gave him notice that he was going to pass away and, and kind of gave him a timeline right at the end, which allowed for some really deep and meaningful correspondence between the two of us. And if I learned anything in writing my last letter to him and, and, and reading his to me, it's, you know, that you have to say those things every day to the people you care about. You know, if you sit down and think about the closest people in your life, what would you say if they had a week left to live? Uh, and try to say that more often. Um, you know, I was honored to, to speak at his funeral, and he asked me to be a pallbearer at Paul Bearer's funeral, and, and probably two of the greatest honors I've ever had um, in my life. And so, anyway, you know, a pretty amazing testimonial and, and certainly transformational for me. And, uh, you know, I would like to think that I live each day differently because I knew Nick, and I hope that, or I, I guess I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one, which is kind of a cool legacy.
1: Mm, I bet um when my husband you know had cancer um you know he was so uh wanting to live you know that that when he came through it which he now is um 6 years in remission uh he he's he, i think his risk assessment changed a little bit you know he kind of came out thinking that he doesn't want to do anything that is going to uh you know be a really big risk although i think that 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 part of that might be just um just in his mind, because he also really wants to live hard and jam in as many adventures as he possibly can. But there is sort of this dichotomy, I think, between, you know, living really hard for people who have gone through cancer, and also being careful that you don't die in a stupid way. You know what I mean? Because you're, you know, you're so uh, you're, you're fighting against death. Do you find that that kind of dichotomy is happening in your participants? You know, it's interesting.
2: Um, I'm always amazed that people choose to do a first defense experience because they were diagnosed with cancer. Um, that said, you know, and, and without knowing too much about your husband, I'm gonna guess he was probably a pretty proficient athlete at the top of his game in the mountains. And uh <laughs> and and perhaps if I were to compare myself to this to a similar situation, I may make you know, I wouldn't go back and do the crazy things I've done, probably especially because I had cancer. Uh at the level that we're you know, providing the the adventure for these young adults. There's a very big safety net around them, and so uh, I think for them it's really just kind of getting out and feeling alive again uh, and, and doing so because they had cancer, you know, that, that uh, we hear this time and again, and I compare it to uh, a soldier going to war, and, you know, our society is so black and white, it's about living or dying, right, and the soldier comes back from war after some horrendous experiences, uh, and everyone pats him on the back and says, thanks for your service, welcome home, get back to living. Well, what we find, obviously, is that there's a lot of trauma associated with those experiences and it needs to be addressed or it can be really uh, destructive. Well, the same goes for cancer. It's, it's really not specific to, to war or, or disease. It's specific to trauma. And the trauma for these young adults of having to face their own mortality at a young age or at, at an unnatural age and, and going through things that they never thought they should go through, even if they survive their cancer or sometimes especially if they survive their cancer, leaves them uh, kind of in this shell of themselves and not living, and so you know they they kind of just need something to jump start that life to get back to it, to get their you know quote unquote mojo back and so the FD experience has certainly proven to be an effective way for them to do it but but I do agree with you that um you know we have to manage that risk and and certainly I would as well that uh you know I think that they're they They live much more intentionally, and I think they're much more aware of the fact that they are alive and how they want to live that life, and they make decisions from those points, and I think we should all learn from that.
1: Yeah, I think that that's that key, that intentional living, deciding I'm not just going to go take a risk just for the sake of the risk, but I'm going to do it because it allows me to live in a bigger way and in the way that I see myself living. Exactly. Exactly. Mhm mhm. Do you think you know you were talking earlier about um about studies that show that, that outdoor adventure is good for you, you know, for the for your participants that it improves the body image and the confidence and decreases per- depression. Do you think that that's true for all of us? I mean, you, you oh, I, know, even I, the people without absolutely cancer? Absolutely 110%
2: yes. There, there's no question in my mind that that you know these studies that you know we we're looking at a very specific population, but the results aren't specific to the population. I think it's maybe perhaps a bit more relevant or underscored because we know that they're going into this experience with uh, some distress in key areas because of the diagnosis. But you know, I think these are that distress, even if it's on a lesser level. It, that's something we all experience. You know, we've all been through through being anxious or, or perhaps being depressed or you know. A lack of confidence in ourselves or our bodies. Like, these, these are not specific to cancer. These are common to all of us. Perhaps, again, not at at, at the same levels or for the same reasons. But I, I, you know, I wholeheartedly believe that getting out and doing outdoor adventure with a group uh, really restores a lot of that stuff for all of us.
1: You know, I think that if you've done outdoor adventures, if you've been an outdoor athlete you know that in your heart but it's really hard to express that and i think oftentimes the media uh looks at extreme athletes as people who are adrenaline junkies you know and i'm thinking about you know in light of the fact that um two really big base jumpers just passed away in the last week, Mario Richard and Mark Sutton. And all of the media around that is about the risks that they took and how, um, and how they were really out on the ragged edge, you know, and that kind of thing. But and, and which is true, they were taking large risks. But I think that what isn't talked about very often is the value of pushing ourselves out on the edge, the value of doing these things. Uh, it, it really is good for you.
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's so easy for people to disconnect because they see someone jump off a cliff and they immediately say, well, they're crazy. Well, they don't realize how many hundreds of thousands of jumps that, you know, it took them to get to that point, how calculated that risk is, and probably most importantly, where that, where that journey began. You know, what, what seed did that grow from? Uh, and, and if you could trace that back, it really probably ends up pretty close to all of us. And the reasons that they do it aren't because, you know, they're just attention seeking adrenaline junkies with a half a brain and no college degree, it's because they're really passionate people who find uh I think, you know, this is what I would assume, but who find a lot of um personal growth and transformation transformation and meaning and value in doing those things. Uh and I think to, to write them off as as these, you know, sort of half wit crazy guys is, is just it's so ignorant.
1: Right. <laughs> Right. And I I, I wouldn't say it's just the fault of the media. I think you're right that when we uh, we as a culture see this kind of act and, and, you know, like somebody could look at the photo of you, you know, going off a waterfall and say, oh, that guy's crazy. I'm never going to I would never do that, you know, Um, but it's not it's it's just that sort of uh, it's almost, I guess, an ignorance of understanding what that athlete has gone through to get there. Exactly. You know, and all of the and, – and, you know, of course, in in we only see, you know, 15 seconds in a video, say, of of a big – you know, of, of a really huge feat, whether it's a skier jumping off a cliff or a kayaker going off a waterfall or a base jumper, you know, wingsuit flying. We don't see the, all the prep. We don't see the years and years of training. You know, we don't see all of that other stuff. We just see that 15 minutes and just assume that that person's only been doing it for, you know, a year. Let's say or yep. whatever.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We see a very small snap, snapshot in a very long timeline of, of uh, you know, a very long journey that led to that point. And, yeah. And we make assumptions from that snapshot, not from the entire journey. I think.
1: I remember having an interview with Ingrid Backstrom, the skier, and I told her that I thought uh, ski movies should have more documentary effects and have more you know, about what goes into each jump. And she said, "Uh, Kim, nobody would watch that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of sad, isn't it? It seems like we've we've lost interest in anything but that that crazy moment. And I, I wish that someone could find a way to crack the code of telling that story that led to it. And people have tried. It just seems that at the end of the day what really resonates is the stunt not the prep for the stunt, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Brad Ludden has pioneered an amazing organization. Let's take a short break. After we come back, we'll find out more about Brad, Cosmo Magazine's most eligible bachelor.
4: Crystal Mountain Resort is Washington State's largest and premier ski area. With 10 lifts and over 50 named trails, you can spend days exploring the mountain. From wide-open bowls and steep chutes for the more adventurous to family-friendly cruisers, you're sure to find something for everyone. The new eight-passenger gondola takes you 2,500 vertical feet to the best view of Mount Rainier and the Summit House Restaurant, where the food rivals the scenery. Convenient slopeside accommodations make Crystal Mountain Resort the perfect skier's getaway. Open for skiing until June. Learn more at crystalmountainresort.com.
0: self-improvement career advice and a variety of other topics check us out today you're sure to find something of interest voice america variety talk on today's hot topics
3: every wednesday you'll want to talk sports with touchdown tony collins and his co-host bill mattis tony's broken records and has been to the pro bowl and the super bowl we'll talk about what's happening in sports every week with news action and notable guests from all aspects of the sports world. We'll also involve you by discussing questions and topics of interest sent in via email from listeners all over the world. Become what you believe. Tune into Sports Talk with Touchdown Tony Collins, Wednesdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Sports.
4: Your Internet flagship station for sports. sports
0: you're listening to the edge with kim kircher if you have a question or comment for our show today please call to 1-888-346-9144 that's 1-888-346-9144 or send an email to kimberlykircher at gmail.com now back to the edge
1: Welcome back to The Edge, where I'm talking to First Descent's president, Brad Ludden. So, Brad, let's talk a little bit more about you. When I Googled you, I saw a Cosmo contest. Tell me about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, <it's, laughs> this is kind of like the black eye of my whole, my whole career that seems to be the Google favorite. Um, uh, gosh, you know, it's funny. So Cosmo every year hosts this uh, America's Hottest Bachelor competition and then each state has its representative hottest bachelor and then they go on to new york and they're on the today show and then uh... through voting and, and selection process cosmo picks one you know america's hottest bachelor winner uh... so anyway unbeknownst to me a friend of me nominated me uh, a friend of mine nominated me to be uh... Amer- or sorry colorado's hottest bachelor and so you know you can imagine my surprise when i get this phone call from this new york number which isn't too uncommon because i do quite a bit of work out in new york and I answer the phone. Yes, this is Brad. And they say, "Hey, Brad, it's Cosmo Magazine. We want to let you know that you're Colorado's hottest bachelor." And <laughs> I immediately was like, okay, that's yeah, funny. Who is this?" You know, that went on for a while until I finally realized they weren't kidding. Then I had to dig to the bottom of how I even got to that place and who nominated me. And anyway, it was like, "Wow, well, that's you know, interesting. That should be an interesting experience. Why not?" Uh, I kind of thought, "Well, I'll go along with this and just sort of fly under the radar and let this whole storm pass and uh, and just enjoy the experience." Well. Um, as it turns out, the day that they flew us out to LA for the photo shoot for the magazine, uh, I received um, a phone call from our board chair letting me know that our uh, executive director passed away from cancer, a good friend of mine, Alan Goldberg. And he, of all people, was giving me the hardest time about this whole thing. And it was that same day that I also learned there was a contest and it was kind of based on voting and then the winner got $10,000 and I thought, well, you know, for you, Alan, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come out from hiding you know, blast this to everyone I know and if I win this thing I'll donate the money to First Ascent in your name. Uh, and sure enough I sent out one email to a group of friends that went viral. Uh ended up winning the whole thing, becoming quote unquote America's Honda Bachelor, which is what it is, I suppose. Uh but it was a really great platform to speak about first Ascent. It was a big audience. Uh, obviously ten thousand dollars is nothing to, you know, shake a stick at and it was really wonderful to 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 be able to tell the FD story to millions of people who wouldn't have otherwise heard it. So that was all, of course, the upside. The downside is that it becomes uh, kind of a national pie-throwing contest and endless fodder for your friends.
1: Yes, and then when you get interviewed on the radio, your host uh, asks you about it. <laughs> yeah. It's
2: literally Brings it like up every again. time I'm, I'm in any sort of public setting, I wait for the other shoe to drop. You know, anytime yeah. I'm being introduced as a speaker on radio TV, it's like so Brad And the Cosmo, and I'm like, there it is. <laughs> yeah, there's so
1: the it's, Cosmo. it's, uh, you know, it's entertaining. you the Cosmo.
2: <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's fun to laugh about. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and there is kind of a, a media fascination with extreme athletes, do you think yeah, you know? Oh, I mean, there's kind of like I mean,
2: that's our job is is media, right? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And how do you and, do that? How do you how do how do athletes who really are focused on you know their sport know how to deal with media?
2: I was really fortunate in that um, being a Nike athlete, they actually put you through quite a bit of media training, which was. You know, as an 18-year-old punk, that was a really, really valuable thing for me Uh, because you don't, I think, A, you don't realize how how you come off with some of the media, and, B, you don't realize the power of the media. Uh, And so, you know, as athletes, we do what we do. We go out and and we do what we're best at, we're most passionate about, and we're good at that. As soon as you have to put us in front of a very large audience, uh, to talk about that, things can go sideways quickly <laughs> to the point of ending your career. And so you have to learn that it's that necessary evil if you want to succeed in your passion because that's where your sponsors get their leverage. That's how they make their money and, in turn, how you make yours. Uh, and so you have to learn how to play to the media, how to how to work with the media, how to accommodate the media, how to kind of tell the story you're trying to to tell without letting it go the other way. Uh, because you're really giving them a blank canvas and and some paints, and they paint the picture. And so you have to try to influence that picture as much as possible. Um, And so that's been, you know, a really fun, interesting thing for me to be a part of and witness and and learn about. Um, And it provides some really amazing opportunities as well. So uh, all in all, I can't complain, but it was definitely a fascinating part of becoming an athlete.
1: Yeah, I bet, I bet. What do you think that you'd say through your experience with First Descents, the organization, that you've m- learned the most about yourself? Oh, man.
2: Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, for me, it's, it's this constant reminder of how fleeting life is. I think we all get so wrapped up in the future and the past that we forget, we forget about today, we forget about now. And I'm probably as guilty as anybody. Um, you're so focused on where you're going or, or what's happened to you that you forget about what is happening and where you are. And I think you know it's probably not too dissimilar for for most of our participants, but a diagnosis of cancer will will bring your attention to the present really quickly and suddenly saving for your kids' college doesn't seem quite as important as, as taking the time off work to go live today um, and so for me it's it's not waiting to live or planning to live it's living and, and I've learned that if i don't if I'm not reminded of that constantly, then I forget to do it and i i'm probably not too dissimilar from most people out there that you know we, we kind of make plans to live but we forget to actually do it today and it's so important not to let life get away get away from you because you know the one certainty is that we will all die uh when is the question but sitting around waiting for that answer is a bad idea
1: and first descent has a vision that really speaks to that yeah
2: yeah so we're you know obviously the programs we offer really centered around that, you know, seizing life, seeking life, you know, choosing to go do amazing, crazy things simply because you can, because you're alive to experience them. Uh, our vision for the organization is, is to, to offer that to as many uh, people as possible. And so right now it's interesting. We, uh, as I said, we've served, you know, I think, close to 3,000 people now through these programs uh, in the history of the organization. We have about 1,000 people on a waiting list today, and that's growing at about 10 names per day. Um, and, and that's without us doing any outreach or, or just recruiting. That's just the word of mouth, and I think it shows the demand for the programs and, and really our need to grow the organization as much as responsibly, but as much as possible to meet that demand to offer this experience to as many young adults who want it. Um, because you know that there is a timeline on these things, and, and we do kind of live with a sense of urgency. So we're in the process of really uh, scaling our, our model. Uh, is sort of deepening the experience even further and uh, trying to add as many offerings as possible over the next five years to reach 5,000 a year in five years uh, and about 10,000 between now and then.
1: Well, that's great. And how how can people learn more about First Descents? What's your website?
2: Uh, the website is just firstdescents.org. Uh, and if you just go on there, there's all sorts of, we're actually launching our new site here in about two weeks, but if you go on there, uh, you can learn everything about donating, uh, volunteering. Uh, If you know a young adult with cancer, tell them to check out the site. Again, These programs are free, and we're trying to get them out to as many people as possible, so let them know about this resource. We also have a ton of resources, a lot of connections within the industry, Uh, and then you can also sign up for Team First Defense, which is kind of a crowd-sourced fundraising uh, platform where you set up your own page, pick a challenge, whether that's 5K or, or climbing a peak or a marathon, whatever it is, uh, and then fundraise around that, and all that money goes into First Descent and, and the experiences we offer.
1: So those are uh, are organizations that First Descent puts on, or they're just uh, 5Ks that are you know outside, and you're just you're just building, so, you know. Yeah.
2: So it can be any challenge. Okay. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. if you're doing anything in your life that you perceive as challenging, that can be your challenge. Uh, we're we're not really in the business of defining people's individual challenge, rather encouraging them to find their own. And so, for example, I'm headed to um, Idaho tomorrow, uh, to do kind of a, a really big cross-country bike ride up there, hopefully in one day, uh, with a group of friends and we're trying to raise a bunch of money for First Descent. And each year I pick a different challenge of, than the Leadville, uh, Leadville 100 mountain bike race, I've run the New York Marathon, uh, I did a 28-mile sea kayak, you know, all sorts of stuff. So, uh, each year it's, it's a good opportunity for me to kind of get out and, and challenge myself and, do so uh, feeling really good about why I'm doing it.
1: And how many people do you have now that volunteer for the organization?
2: Oh gosh, um, several hundred. Uh, we, we do have quite a bit of staff, both full-time and, and contract, that kind of keep the, the lights on and the programs running. Uh, but we also have uh, anywhere from five to seven volunteer uh, uh, spaces per program that we really try to fill. Um. Those volunteer volunteers play a valuable role uh, in the organization and in the experience we deliver, and we we could not do it without them.
1: Mm-hmm. And how? And and you were saying that on the website, there's information about how to get involved as a volunteer.
2: Yep. Exactly. Um, my gosh, I wish I had it in front of me. I received a, a testimonial from a volunteer this morning that was just so awesome to read. She really nailed what it is to volunteer at these programs. Uh, but yeah, go on the website click on the volunteer link uh, and follow the steps to fill out a volunteer application and I assure you it's probably the most transformational thing you'll you'll do for yourself in quite some time. Uh, These participants get a lot out of the program but I might argue that oftentimes we as volunteers get more.
1: If you had the this a stage right now where you could uh declare you know to the world some lesson that you've learned you know through your experience with first descents and your experience as a kayaker how would you phrase it Hmm. (laughs) that's a toughie that's a really good question
2: um i think i think for me uh, and I've kind of touched on this throughout the the uh, our conversation here, but I think that the biggest thing is to, like, uh, and you said this with your husband, but live with intention. You know, don't don't just live passively. And I, I think that that's very cliche and easy to kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. But actually spend some time with that. You know, sit down with a journal for an hour one evening and write about what that means. You know, write about what it is that you want to do, how you see your life, how you want your life to be, what challenges you need to face. And then hold yourself accountable to that stuff and go live it. Um, you know, if there's one, one thing I could try to impress upon anyone, it's that, uh, you know, this doesn't last. Uh, and I don't know if you believe in reincarnation or afterlife, but I wouldn't, put, I wouldn't bet on it. The one, the one certainty now is that you've got, you've got life, and if you've got it, you need to live it. You know, it's, a, it's an obligation. Uh, and so, you know, spend some time with that. Like, really think about what that would mean. What if you were diagnosed tomorrow? What would, that, what would that do to you? What would you do with your life? What would you do differently? And don't wait to be diagnosed. So do those things.
1: Yeah, exactly. What's next for you, Brad?
2: Whew. Well, <laughs> um, I'm actually, uh, we're, we're in the process of trying to execute against that vision I touched on just a few minutes ago. Um, you know, I I am so passionate, as passionate today about First Descent as I was the day I started it. Um, you know, the day I had that idea, that passion hasn't glim- dwindled a bit, and so as long as it's there, I'm here. Uh, and so I want to, you know, as long as they'll have me, I want to stay uh, at the helm of the vision of First Descent and and really continue to try to apply that passion to grow these experiences. Um, and so for me, it's, uh you know, uh just trying to, to keep finding the talent. You know, we're, we're recruiting an executive director right now to, to help run the organization for the next five years or beyond uh, and, and trying to get the right people in place to execute that vision, get them, uh, you know, sell them on that passion, get them sold on that vision, on board, and, and grow this army of people, volunteers, staff, um, alumni that are first descent and that, that are going to execute against this vision. I just want to be a part of it.
1: Well, so I guess Brad, that's what's
2: next for me. <laughs> More <of> the same.
1: <laughs> Thank you. that Brad, thanks for being on the show, and thanks for this wonderful work that you're doing.
2: Of course, yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored.
1: Yeah. This past week, two of the world's best base jumpers died while performing their sport. Both Mario Richard and Mark Sutton knew the risks and jumped anyway. It would be easy, as, easy for us on the sidelines to judge them, to declare that they simply took too many risks, and that their lives were squandered. But to do so would be to diminish the power of choice. No base jumper wants to die. No kayaker has ever purposefully chosen a waterfall as his or her grave. Extreme athletes are not on a death wish, but rather a life wish. This is the life they want to live, risks included. Brad Ludden has chosen to step back from the edge in order to make room for others. He's gracefully introduced the power of choice to his participants. After months of cancer treatments, his patients learn to use their bodies to bring them joy rather than anguish. First Descent participants reclaim their lives through outdoor adventure. This is the power of putting ourselves out on the edge. If the outcome was always certain, then the adventure wouldn't be worth it. That's all the time I have for today. Join me next week on The Edge.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on The Edge. Please tune in next Wednesday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel as Kim Kircher talks with another standout who lives life on The Edge.